the news is full of stories about people trying to limit other people's expression. A battle over a flagpole, faith in the First Amendment, and free speech. Americans are divided over what, when, where, and how things can or can't be said. From the ACLU, this is Ask an Expert, a special mini-series where our constitutional experts answer your civil rights and civil liberties questions. The importance of free speech in our democracy. The culture of free speech is under attack. It's crucial for students to be able to express themselves because schools are nurseries of democracy, and democracy only works if we protect a free exchange of ideas. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. For this edition, we are diving into free speech and talking to expert Ben Weisner, the director of the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. Last week, for our first episode, we established our free speech footing, defining exactly what free speech is and isn't. This week, Ben is back to break down free speech as it exists online and on social media, in 140 characters or less. Just kidding. Social media has undoubtedly presented new free speech challenges to consider, and consider them we will. We have been sourcing free speech questions from you over email, social media, and our phone line. We've sorted through the questions, and we're ready to dive right in. So, Ben, thank you so much for joining us again. Glad to be back and ready when you are. Great. I know we have a lot of folks eager to hear our thoughts about Elon Musk buying Twitter. So if that's you, I want you to sit tight, because first we are going to lay some helpful groundwork. So, Ben, there's an ACLU free speech case that I think might help set the stage for our greater conversation about online speech and what the courts have said about censoring speech on the Internet. I'm thinking of Reno versus ACLU. So for our listeners, let's start uh, with what was the case about, what was the decision, and how does it apply here? When the Internet first emerged, you had lawmakers very, very nervous, uh, as they often are with new technologies, about how this was going to corrupt our children. And Congress's response to this was a law called the Communications Decency Act, um, which would have applied the same kind of speech rules to the internet um, as exists right now for things like radio and network television. The Supreme Court has upheld the authority of the Federal Communications Commission to apply a decency standard to material that is readily and easily available through radio and television to minors. Uh, and Congress said, well, why don't we use that same standard for this new, scary communications platform called the Internet? And the ACLU, representing uh, a whole range of online speakers and publishers, uh, challenged the law and said, no, um, this is potentially the most important forum for free speech that the world has ever seen. Uh, And the standard that should apply should be the more permissive standard that applies to books, that applies to movies, magazines, where uh, we're not going to say that all adults have to be brought down to the level of children in the name of protecting children. We're going to allow adults to consume content that may be um, edgier and rely on parents and other institutions to uh, and technologies um, to protect children from content that some adults might deem harmful. Uh, And so that's why the internet is the kind of free speech free-for-all that it has been over these last decades and not something that is as regulated, say, as NPR. So we have the ACLU to blame for the internet. 
Well, you could say to thank or you could say to blame. Um, but certainly the internet would look very, very different today than it does. Okay, that is really helpful context, Ben. I want to jump into Amber Soriani's question because I think that it actually applies to this standard that we're talking about. This is Amber Soriani from Syracuse, New York. Are we going to treat social media platforms as modern town squares where anyone is free to say anything? Okay, well, there's a lot to unpack there. But let's start with modern town squares. Is it true that anyone can say anything? Uh, And we covered this a little bit in last week's edition. There are categories of unprotected speech. Uh, You can't stand up in a town square and defame somebody, uh, deliberately tell a lie that harms their reputation. You can't stand up in a town square and incite a crowd to violence. You can't stand up in a town square and engage in threats or harassment. And those same kinds of exceptions to the First Amendment, as you will, apply on social media as well. I can't go on Twitter and defame someone. Um, I can't go on Twitter and use my platform to threaten someone with physical harm or violence. So uh, in that regard, the First Amendment protections and exceptions are the same, really, in both places. What's different, of course, is that we, the public, own the town square. Uh, When we go into the town square with a sign, we're putting the sign on our lawn. Uh, When you do that on social media, you're doing it on someone else's lawn. Because we don't own Twitter. We don't own Facebook. Other human beings own Twitter and own Facebook, and they have a First Amendment right to decide what kind of signs they want um, in their town square. And that's why Twitter, Facebook, all the main social media platforms have terms of service that set out categories of speech that they don't want to have on their platforms. Um, We sometimes agree with those terms of service. We sometimes disagree with those terms of service. But that's fundamentally different than the town square where only the government in limited circumstances can set the rules constrained by the Constitution. Uh, On social media, uh, the owners of those platforms have almost unfettered discretion uh, to decide what the speech rules will be. And I think that is the question that a lot of folks are posing to us. Should these social media entities have any government regulation imposed upon them because of their unique position in owning so much of our access to express ourselves in today's society? Well, I mean, this really is the question. What kind of government regulations would even be constitutional? Uh, And I know this is probably going to get into some questions that will come up later. But but what if the government said, we don't like the way that you're exercising your discretion on this platform? And so we're going to tell you that you don't have as much power to make editorial choices about what speech will be on these platforms. You're going to have to apply rules that the government likes. The social media companies would file a lawsuit saying that our First Amendment freedom of association is being violated by the government because we created this this speech platform. If you don't like it, go to another one. And the government can't set our editorial rules any more than it can set the editorial rules of a newspaper uh, or any other kind of publisher. Uh, and, and I think from a constitutional standpoint, that's correct. The legal argument to me is fairly straightforward. The policy argument is more complex. Do we approve or disapprove of the way that these social media companies are using their discretion? Are there circumstances where we think that they have been too censorious or not censorious enough? Uh, and then, of course, there are other kinds of 
regulations that we could talk about that might not implicate the First Amendment at all? Like, is there anything the government could do or could have done to prevent some of these companies from becoming as massive as they are, where they have 2.5 or 3 billion users, right? If Facebook had 50,000 users, if Twitter no, we wouldn't care. We wouldn't care who owns them and we wouldn't care what their their speech policies are. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think the only wrinkle in that is that, you know, even if we do make policies, they could then be deemed unconstitutional. So there, sometimes these are policy questions, but really at the end of the day, those policies could get struck down if they are deemed unconstitutional, which, you know, I guess most likely we believe that they would be or should be. So that leads us straight into our next question. This is a question from Elise Widerlight on the regulation of social media companies as it pertains to two specific court cases recently levied by Florida and Texas. Hi, ACLU. My name is Elise Widerlight, and I'm calling from Washington, D.C. Two cases out of Florida and Texas are concerning me when it comes to free speech and social media. These state laws prevent social media companies from removing content, limit their use of algorithms, and require them to publish information about their content moderation practices. They also restrict the company's ability to attach their own labels to users' posts, like the COVID information labels. These are concerning laws, but these social media companies are arguing that social media platforms should enjoy the same very broad First Amendment protections that have been afforded in the past to newspapers. It seems like the answer is somewhere in the middle. What do you think? So this is a very well-informed question, but let me give the listeners a little bit more context. These laws that she asks about really arose in the wake of the social media company's decision in January to remove former President Donald Trump. Uh, Facebook did it. Twitter did it. And Texas and Florida, in response to what they believed was censorship and persecution of conservative voices on these platforms, decided to pass laws that said, these social media companies cannot discriminate based on political viewpoint. That's the core of the laws, is that they must carry political speech and cannot exercise their own political or independent judgment to remove speakers on the basis of viewpoint. Now, we know that that kind of law is unconstitutional as applied to a newspaper. There is Supreme Court precedent there. A state once uh, attempted to pass a law saying that if a newspaper criticized a politician, the politician had to have a right to rebut that in the newspaper. And the Supreme Court said that would be an unconstitutional interference with their independent editorial judgment. The ACLU joined a brief with other press freedom groups um, in which we argued that the same rule really needs to apply here. As the questioner said, there are significant differences uh, between newspapers and say, Facebook. We can't have the government telling these private publishers who to publish, what to publish, what their standards for publication should be, um, what their terms of service can be. The First Amendment gives them wide latitude to make these kinds of decisions for themselves. Now, there may be other ways in which the government could regulate here that would not run afoul of the First Amendment if the government, you know, essentially said, we are requiring these platforms to disclose certain information that might not implicate the same First Amendment concerns as saying you must carry this person's speech if you carry that person's speech. But even there, I mean, if the transparency requirement really is, you know, tell us why you're making the decisions that you're making, I don't think that would be constitutional 
either for the reasons that we said before, which is that the Constitution gives publishers the right to make these kinds of decisions. If people don't like those decisions, they can go to another platform. If the market hasn't supported the existence of another platform, maybe we need to be looking at antitrust law. But the First Amendment doesn't let the government tell Twitter or Facebook who they should publish and why. And what would be the harm in doing so? Well, it'd be the same harm in the government being able to tell any news organization um, what you know viewpoint that they have to show. When you have political actors exercising that kind of judgment, there's no reason to think that they're going to exercise it in the public interest. The other question that people will have is, should these companies be able to change their terms of service and change their rules constantly? I think we saw that with the concern around deplatforming Trump, for example. Look, whether they should be able to or shouldn't be able to in your mind, they are able to under the Constitution. Again, it's their platforms. The First Amendment gives them the right to exercise that judgment, but it also gives us the ability to criticize their judgments and to see the context in which they're being made. So our, our the ACLU position has been the platforms have a First Amendment right to exercise these judgments. But when platforms are as large and influential as Facebook and Twitter, we're still worried about the way that they're exercising that judgment. It shouldn't surprise us that, you know, there were calls on Twitter and Facebook to deplatform, you know, Donald Trump for years. And they did so, you know, on the day that the Democrats won the election in Georgia, and we're going to have complete control of the Congress. Uh, you know, th these are companies that are responsive to the political winds and answerable to their own bottom lines. Why did, did Twitter's board of directors decide to sell the company to Elon Musk? And I know we'll get to this. Not because they thought it was in the public interest, but because it was the interest of their shareholders <laughs> to get the price that they got. And that is why, you know, we should scrutinize these companies closely. We should view their motivations with suspicion. We shouldn't place our hopes and our faith that they will always share our own values when they exercise these kinds of decisions. And we should advocate normatively for neutrality as a principle when they're exercising their judgment. But that is under the law up to them. Okay, so now since you brought it up, and I know that people are really eager to hear uh, your thoughts about this, uh, let's jump into Elon Musk buying Twitter. So for full disclosure, Elon is a donor of the ACLU's. And I just want to start this part of the conversation with reading our statement that we put out about Elon's purchase. While Elon Musk is an ACLU card-carrying member and one of our most significant supporters, there's a lot of danger having so much power in the hands of any one individual. In today's world, a small handful of private tech companies, including Twitter, play a profound and unique role in enabling our right to express ourselves online. Social media is a critical tool used to share ideas, express opinions, and consume information that has real-life impacts in discourse and the offline world. We should all be worried about any powerful central actor, whether it's a government or any wealthy individual, even if it's an ACLU member, having so much control over the boundaries of our political speech online. Ben, tell us more. Well, I, I have to say, I've been a little bit surprised by the reaction here. Oh my, oh my, what are we going to do now that a billionaire oligarch controls the platform? I mean, who do people think controlled the platform yesterday um, or the day before? Or, or control 
most of American society, arguably. <laughs> well, that is a broader point. But again, we still had, before Elon Musk came into the picture, uh, as I said, a handful not particularly diverse, very, very wealthy people from largely one part of the country who had this massive, massive influence over, you know, drawing the lines about what can and can't be said on these platforms. Uh, and their primary allegiance, uh, despite whatever mottos they might have, um, is to their bottom lines, to their stock prices, to their shareholders, and not to the public. And if one result of Elon Musk buying Twitter is that a large number of its users decide to pick up and uh, go to Canada, if you will, start a different kind of platform with different kind of speech rules. That might be a positive development here. Then we can do less hand-wringing about what Twitter's rules are and essentially say that people can vote with their feet and decide you know, what kind of community with what kind of rules for politeness um, they want to have on their platform. But we care about Twitter because of the really vital role that it has come to play even before President Trump was using it essentially to issue his own executive orders and his administration policy. It had already become really a major driver of political debate and conversation in our society. When Twitter decides to ban the posting of something, it could have an effect on an election. If they decide not to ban it, it could have an effect um, on an election. So whether they, they get that right or wrong is going to have real-world impact. So um, what is Elon Musk going to do with Twitter? Lord knows. Um, he has said a few things. He said he wants to tip the scale a little bit more towards the free speech side and a little bit less towards content moderation. He wants people to be able to see under the hood the algorithms that decide what content we see and in what order should be more transparent or open source, as he said. But he also doesn't want there to be spam bots that are diminishing people's experience on Twitter. But, but even those three things really point to the complexity of running a social network like Twitter because they are somewhat contradictory. It's hard to crack down on spam bots without cracking down on anonymous speech, which is a very important free speech principle. It's also difficult to have open source algorithms and crack down on spam bots because if everybody can see um, how Twitter is moderating, that's nice for good actors, but also an invitation for some bad actors to be able to manipulate the program. And there may not be a specific solution here. Again, I think that there is room for some antitrust legislation that would make it more difficult for companies to amass the amount of power that a handful of companies have um, over our political speech. But at this point, it's going to be a long road back. And if people don't want Twitter to have this much power or Facebook to have this much power, uh, then they're going to need to work to create alternatives. Can I ask you a clarifying question about the statement that we released? So, you know, I think the reception of it has been varied. I think in some ways it has been received as, oh, this is a statement opposing free speech, when in reality it addresses the consolidation of power. But it seems to be being framed as us kind of knocking on Elon's free speech or, or something. Can you clarify that? No, no, that, that, that isn't really the idea here. Obviously, it is related to free speech and content moderation. You know, what we're saying is we should be troubled when any centralized entity has this much unfettered control over controlling our speech. Now, with governments they don't have unfettered control. Governments are constrained by the First Amendment. Elon Musk is not constrained by the First Amendment. And if he want, decides tomorrow 
that any speech that criticizes Tesla is going to be banned from Twitter. He absolutely has the right to do that. And if people complain about it, there's not a whole lot they can do. In the context of political speech, if he decides in the month before an election that certain kinds of stories should not be circulated on Twitter, he can make that decision. All we're saying is we should be concerned when that much power, the power that really can shape electoral outcomes is in the hands of one person whose goal is not uh, necessarily to promote democracy, but who is a business person who wants to squeeze profit out of this corporation. We would defend his right to make those decisions. And we are in the Texas and Florida cases on the side of the tech companies and saying that they have a First Amendment right to discriminate on the basis of viewpoint if that's what they want to do. In the next breath, we say, but they really shouldn't do that if they occupy the role in our political system that companies as large as Twitter and Facebook do. Thank you for that clarification. I think it's important just because I don't want our statement to be misinterpreted. So I want to address something that President Obama said recently. He gave a speech at Stanford where he talked about his concern about misinformation, his concern over the power social media companies hold. He said, in quote, these decisions affect all of us. And just like every other industry that has a big impact on our, our society, that means these big platforms need to be subject to some level of public oversight and regulation. He went on to say that the regulations should include requirements for more transparency and an amendment to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act which protects digital platforms from being sued over most content that users post on their services. So this seems to be like we are creating a circle in our conversation here. But, you know, I think people are receiving all of this news with a thirst for some kind of regulation. But if we create said regulation, it is most likely to get shut down by the Supreme Court. Are there any pathways other than dealing with, you know, antitrust laws that are reasonable that could be a solution here? Well, I hope people will go and either read or listen to President Obama's speech at Stanford because he's really a brilliant synthesizer and and he does a great job in a short time of kind of describing how we got here. And to his credit, and I think this is really important, he doesn't blame the big tech platforms for creating the polarization that we have in society. And he doesn't believe that regulation of those platforms is the solution to polarization in society. He recognizes that there are many other underlying causes, including stagnating wages, increasing automation, whole professions being outsourced to other countries, the breakdown of institutions, social institutions, unions, churches, globalization, he mentions. There's a lot of destabilizing forces in the world that have contributed to where we are right now, and that you could say that social media kind of supercharges or maybe accelerates um, some of these trends. But I do think that there is a tendency sometimes in tech circles for us to think that, you know, tech is the center of everything. And it creates the problems, it creates the solutions. And if we could just fix Facebook, we would, you know, fix the problem of polarization and filter bubbles and all of that. And, and, and that, that really isn't the case. Um, and, and so I think 
President Obama's kind of description of how we got here is is really apt. The other thing that I will say is that, like many of us, President Obama is much better at describing the problem than he is at proposing solutions. And so you essentially summarized what he proposed, but it wasn't even really a summary. That's really pretty much all he said is, we need some kind of regulation, but he didn't go into detail about what kind of regulation that might be. Maybe we could reform Section 230, but he didn't say how Section 230 um, should be reformed. Uh, I do think that you know one thing that he advocated, which is sort of more transparency about how these platforms operate, requiring them to give access to researchers and regulators so that they can see how the algorithms are functioning, you know, could be done in a way that is thoughtful and could be constitutional. But he also rightly said that we're not going to fact check or content moderate our way, you know, out of these problems. The world is what it is. Let's talk about Section 230 for a second. You know, Section 230 is the law that, as you said, broadly gives platforms immunity for content that other people post, with exceptions. We're talking about Twitter. Twitter couldn't exist in the absence of Section 230. If Twitter were responsible for all the things that we tweet, then we would have to submit our tweets to Twitter. They would have to run them through legal review, and only then could they be posted. Section immunity is kind of a safe harbor. It gives them immunity. It says, we encourage you to create whatever kind of environment you want, to exercise editorial control very liberally, and we're not going to punish you for your exercise of that control by taking away your immunity. And so I think when you hear politicians say, if Twitter wants immunity, they have to stop discriminating against conservatives, or, or they have to you know, stop allowing this kind of content to post. If you took away you know, that immunity, Twitter would be so cautious that it would curtail the speech of all users, including conservatives, on that website because they would err on the side of, of not wanting to face additional liability. And it would be a very, very different kind of internet with no Section 230. But if you just want Twitter to be a better place than it is right now, 230 repeal is not what you should be advocating for. It seems like what we commonly come back to, Ben, is this idea that if you really think about drawing the line out from whatever you're recommending we do online, in regulation, in censorship, you can start seeing all of the pitfalls of what you're proposing. And that's what makes these issues so complicated. Most people, I want to believe, are trying to make the world a better place, want to make online a better place. And I think your point is maybe in order to make online a better place, we need to make offline a better place. Yeah. And really, whatever rule you think of advocating, um, please engage in the hypothetical process of how this could be weaponized by people who are on the other side, because it probably will be in that way. And, you know, this really is an area where, look, no legal system is going to actually be neutral. People with more power, people with more resources are always going to be treated better in any legal system with any rule. Nonetheless, the First Amendment's neutrality has been vital for every dissident social movement in this country's history. We would not have had 
any of the profound sweeping movements for social change that we've had without a strong First Amendment. And you can hear the leaders of every civil rights movement in our country's history have made this point that that there is no civil rights movement without a very, very strong First Amendment because movements for rights are always going to be advocating, at least initially, for things that are opposed by majorities of the population. Um, And so my commitment to these principles comes from my distrust of political majorities um, to deal with questions of fundamental rights. And my belief has always been that any rule that restricts speech is going to, in the long run, be more harmful for people who are advocating change than for people who are advocating the status quo. Okay, so for our last question, this is getting at our individual right to post online. This question comes from a Florida government employee who wishes to remain anonymous. So our producer, Aaron, read this one for us. For years, employees of the state have had social media posts monitored by staff members inside the agency for which we work. Any posted opinion or facts found from another verifiable source that is perceived as contrary to the sitting administration is cause for discussion and advice. And the advice is to remove the post. Is that a limitation of free speech? So this is a really interesting question. And before before we turn to the question of this government employee's rights, let's change the hypothetical and presume that the speaker just worked for a private company or a nonprofit organization, but something that's not the government. There, it's pretty important for people to know that they can be fired for their posts on social media. They cannot be hired. They can be fired. The First Amendment is only protecting us, again, from government retaliation, not from private employers. From private employment, you might have civil rights protection, so they can't fire you for your religion, for your race, for your gender. Um, But they certainly can fire you for tweeting something that the company disagrees with. So I think probably most of our listeners don't listen to the government. They should not think that they have an employment right to tweet against their employer uh, or to post something on social media. It is different if you work for the government because there the Constitution does come into play. Government employees do not lose their First Amendment rights, but they can be constrained. Questions that we ask when you are a government employee are, you know, first, is the speech on a matter of public concern, in which case it presumptively has First Amendment protection? And how related is the speech to your job or your government function, right? And the more related it is to what you do, the more control that the government is going to have and that the courts are going to allow the government to have. So that if if you, you know, for example you know, work for a school district and the school district announces a controversial policy uh, and you go on social media all the time to denounce that policy that you have been instructed to to apply in the community. So the school district says, we are no longer going to teach creationism in our district because that violates the establishment clause. And then you say, I will continue to teach creationism because God is the higher authority. Well, the school can take action against you for that kind of speech because it's so closely related to your function, even though it's indisputably on a matter of public concern. So here, I think we don't have enough information from this questioner to know. But I do think that, you know, to the extent that a government employer believes that 
the tweets relate directly to the work of the employee and contradict the policy of the government, then First Amendment rights in that context would probably be diminished and courts might side with the government. Yeah, and I think that's a really important thing to discuss because a lot of people actually wrote in asking about their rights to post online without being punished or censored by their private employer. We chose not to address those individually on this episode because, unfortunately, that's just within the private employer's right. And some of those private entities might have very generous speech policies like the ACLU has for its own employees, where, where you know, most ACLU staff who are on social media will write tweets in my private capacity to make clear that they are not purporting to represent the position of the ACLU. But we're very permissive. And we, in fact, allow staff to disagree with ACLU positions on social media. Publicly. Yeah, publicly. As long as they make clear somehow that they are not purporting to speak for the organization, not every employer is going to take that kind of um, permissive approach. So, so people do need to be careful. Thank you so much for talking with us again today and helping us parse through yet another series of robust free speech questions as it pertains to how we all engage online. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. Our next and final episode is on education and book bans and student speech. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, call us and leave us a message at 212-549-2558. That's 212-549-2558. Or you can email us at podcast at aclu.org. And for more conversations, join us on Thursday for our regular At Liberty episodes, where we tackle all different kinds of civil rights and civil liberties issues.